Welcome to the Reform Journal Podcast, where we're talking about faith and church, scripture and theology, as well as culture, politics, history, literature, arts, and the sciences, with thoughtful, interesting people coming at it from a generously Reformed perspective. Find us at reformjournal.com. Hello, I am Kate Coyman, one of the hosts of the Reformed Journal podcast, and I have the distinct pleasure of sitting with two of my very favorite people for a conversation on the podcast today. Two people I happen to be related to and I've known my whole life, and I'm super, super glad to be sharing this conversation with all of the listeners. So my uncle, Douglas Brower, has written a book that is delightful called Chasing After Wind, A Pastor's Life. And so my Uncle Doug is joining us today and his daughter, my cousin, Sarah. Um, I'm going to let them introduce themselves and then we're going to get started on having a what I hope is an interesting family conversation that all of you can listen in on as we're all ministers in very different ways and have enjoyed reading this book uh, that we get to talk about with Uncle Doug. So Uncle Doug, let's start with you and then you can introduce Sarah. Well, Kate, thanks so much for having us on the, on this podcast. It's uh, an honor to do this. I've been a Reformed Journal reader and a fan for, uh, well, longer than I care to say. <laughs> but it, it has come back in a digital form, and I couldn't be more excited about that. It has younger voices these days, which is wonderful. As a matter of fact, I uh, thought it was important to invite a younger voice to be part of the conversation today, and I happen to be related to her too. Yeah, I'm Sarah Brower. I um, am Doug's daughter. I am I'm not a longtime Reform Journal reader, but I understood many of the references to it in my dad's book. I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister serving in a United Church of Christ Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. Great. And I'm uh, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And for those of you who don't know my background, I'm also an ordained minister in the Reformed Church. So I'm the only non-Presbyterian in this conversation, but I have never, I've never pastored a church. So my role in ministry has always been from the denominational leadership perspective and really specific to social justice ministry. Although I'm not doing that at the moment. So when I read your book, Uncle Doug, what I one of the things I loved about it was your explaining your journey, sort of reluctant journey into becoming a, a pastor, which you didn't really want to do when you first became theologically trained. That wasn't your goal. And it was a life that sort of found you and that you settled into and became your identity. So I'd love to have you just... Tell us a little, if people aren't familiar with the book, tell us a little bit about how did, how would you describe your calling to being a, yeah, people's pastor, a parish minister? You know, it was probably obvious to everybody else in my life where I was headed, but it was not obvious to me. I had the opportunity to work one summer at Erdman's Publishing Company, and I noticed that uh, the, the senior editors had diplomas on their walls from some fine theological seminaries. And I thought, oh, that must be the path to a career in Christian publishing. And it was on that basis that I applied to seminary, thinking that that's where I was headed. And then to make this story short, 
<laughs> I realized that I couldn't graduate from a seminary without actually working in a church. And I, I had nothing against the church. I wasn't planning to leave it, but that just wasn't my, I didn't think that was my direction. So uh, between second and third years of uh, seminary, I served a church in Iowa City of all places and had a life-changing experience. And I left there with vocational clarity. I knew where I was headed. I knew what God was calling me to do with my life. But <laughs> for, the, for the first two-thirds of my way through seminary, I thought I was heading in one direction, and it turned out that I would be going a completely, a completely different direction. Yeah. I also went to seminary without the desire to work in a church, and I never ended up doing it. So I loved reading about what it looked like for somebody to do that U-turn in seminary because of having a really good, positive, formative ex church. Sarah, but you, you grew up with a dad as a minister. What, like, what role do you feel like that had in you deciding that to pursue ministry yourself? Well, it was interesting reading the book because I think I knew about most of the things that happened in that, that my dad describes in the book, but I think he hid quite a bit of the pain that happened while those events were occurring because growing up in the church, I always just felt, and I, it's funny because I recently had a, a parishioner ask me this question of, did you always know that you wanted to be a, a pastor? And I think at some level I did because I've sat in those pews week after week, also attending worship in the morning on Sundays and most often Sunday evening youth group and Wednesday evenings. And it was the place that I felt the most at home. And I feel like my sister probably w would give you a different story about how she felt about a lot of those years. But that parishioner that asked me that question, I mean, I just always felt, oh, this is where I feel so at home. And those members cherished me and showed up for me. And and I always just, I, I remember sitting in the pews week after week, just with a sense of belonging and understanding that the spirit was active and in me. And it didn't seem like a huge leap. It, nor did it, I feel an extra amount of pressure to go into ministry because my dad was a pastor. It just felt like a natural series of events. And it doesn't make for a really exciting call story necessarily. But other than the fact that it always just felt like the place where I experienced love and grace, like you talked about in Iowa City, Dad, I just, um, and that's obviously changed somewhat over the years, but not the sense that. I feel most in touch with God's spirit and my calling when I'm around the faithful people who really, really show up and make up our churches. Yeah, it makes me wonder a little bit, Sarah. I'm not sure most pastor's kids would describe their experience in that way. I don't know, but that seems to be such a gift that not only as the pastor's kid did you experience that, but that you experienced that at all in the church. I think we're living in a time right now when a lot of people are kind of rethinking their church histories. If they did grow up in the church, we're kind of doing some reckoning right now with what we want to hold on to and what we don't. And so I, I actually really love hearing you talk in that way about what your experience was like. And it feels especially poignant because your dad was the minister. Do you think it, that's unique or do you feel like that's sort of the way you well, it doesn't, talk about it? I mean, it doesn't mean I'm not deconstructing some parts of my childhood that I think were bizarre and unfortunate. Like the late 90s was full and especially in a place like Wheaton was full of 
uh, odd conservative theology. And it was, you know, it was coming to be in all sorts of places around the U.S., but like Willow Creek was right there. And so I'm definitely deconstructing a lot of that, but I think I can compartmentalize it in it, you know, and I've, I've also faced some of the same things that my dad talks about in the book, the betrayal, the disillusionment, all those things. But like you did, Dad, I think I always come back to who were those faithful people and those holy moments that make it worthwhile. And I think I've also maybe earlier in my career just decided to reject a lot of what is so exhausting about the church because I realize maybe from learning from you, but also just from my own experience that it's not worth my time or God's time to to give a whole lot of energy to those things that are just so much about power and career and money and all the things that I think people who have already rejected the church are have just washed their hands clean of. I, I'm choosing to try and walk in the middle of that a little bit. Yeah, Kate, if I could jump in there. It, it, you and I have not talked about this before the podcast, so I'm, it was wonderful to hear you say some of that. If you can experience the disillusionment earlier in your life and ministry than I did, I think that it will uh, be helpful to you. As I described in the book, disillusionment is actually a, a kind of gift. It's a painful gift. But as soon as we let go of what's not real and what's not authentic, then we're, <laughs> I'm saying this like I've, I've always understood it, and this is a relatively recent discovery for me, but it, the, the sooner we let go of what's not real, the, the sooner we can embrace what is authentic about ministry. And I, I sense that you are doing that. It makes me glad. Yeah. I, you know, I think that you write about disillusionment. I, or, or maybe I, you write about it really well. And I think what I appreciated about it is you leave a lot of openness for people. There's just, it feels spacious to me to read about your own ability to look back on the way that your ministry life, maybe you, yeah, you feel disillusioned with a lot of it. And then you don't come to some really strong conclusions about what you wish maybe would have been different, which actually felt really freeing to me. I wonder if, if you, I, I mean, is that, are you at a, a place now, Uncle Doug, where you are like thinking through what you think life would have looked like if you had gone through your disillusionment earlier? I mean, do you think your ministry would have gotten shaped wholly differently if you had gone through that sooner, like you're sort of encouraging Sarah to do? This is painful to admit, but to allow yourself to be disillusioned requires some courage. Uh, I I would have had to be courageous enough to let go of one kind of ministry, uh, a kind of ministry that paid the bills and <laughs> allowed me to pay uh, at least part of Sarah's uh, college uh, tuition. So it, I don't know if I had the courage back then to be as authentic as I wish I had been. Here's an interesting part of the story. I'm about ready to embark on an interim, I'm about ready to become an interim pastor for a, I don't know, eight or nine months period. And one of my uh, goals in going into this is to find out for myself if it's possible to be the authentic kind of pastor that I would like to be in that setting. Now, I've 
my pension is set, so it's not quite as risky as it would have been a, a, a long time ago. But I'm I'm very curious to know what 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 authentic ministry would look like for me. So I do, I don't have an idea, a strong idea anyway, of what that's going to be. Where do you like? Yeah, when you when you read about your dad's experience as a minister, do you see your time doing this being quite different? Do you think that the context is just wholly different for you? Or do you resonate with a lot of what he has described doing this now and in the context that you are? And tell us a little bit about the context that you're that you're pastoring in as well. I do think it's a lot different because I think I'm not grieving a church that was in my childhood. The context I'm in actually is it's pretty stark and right in your face because I'm in a I'm in a really healthy mid-sized church of about 250 people, but we worship in a building the the sanctuary can seat up to 1100 people. The building is full and busy every single day of the week because of our childhood center. It faces us every Sunday that, you know, those pews aren't filled, but the space is full of love and the gospel and I and because I came from a church previously several churches previously that were sort of I was on that same career track of becoming a senior pastor of a big Presbyterian church and because my spouse basically doesn't want to move you know which I and frankly I didn't really want to move either and I will say I I have interviewed for two large church senior pastor jobs uh, in town that I I didn't get either. So that's probably important to note. But yeah, it looks different because the church is changing. In fact, one of my clergy friends texted me the other day, basically he had calculated the math that the rate of membership decline means that there's not going to be a church. in If it keeps declining at the same rate, it's not going to be a Presbyterian church in 24 years. And I was like, great, we have a date. We have a date now that we can put on our calendar, right? But that's not the point anymore. The, the point is, you know, what I'm really focused on, and it's interesting that we're talking, you know, on the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder, like my the part of my deconstructing of my faith and ministry is that it's, I don't care about the larger church or about my career anymore. And I'm not trying to be self-righteous when I say that, but I just have so much to learn about what we're doing here as Christians that I'm, I'm trying to fill my time that way versus, and, and it doesn't mean that I don't still have an ego and like to see more people in the pews than not. And I do have a, I have a really great salary actually, but I'm trying to fill my life with learning about all the ways in which we can really be faithful disciples and not concerned about keeping the church afloat. Kate, I can't resist telling this story. I've spent the last two winters now in Minneapolis or St. Paul, and I'm one of the rare people who goes north for the winter. So I've been able to worship at Sarah's church. What's so striking to me and gratifying at the same time is what a different focus there is in Sarah's ministry and in her church's ministry. I, I it, Sarah's associate pastor said to her, at one point this winter, I think we're blowing your dad's mind. And uh, he was, he's absolutely right. 
what Sarah and her colleagues, her church members are about is so much different from what I was about for 40 years of, of my life. And I don't know that or we could what you were about. You were, you were about that dad internally, but you were dealing with the, what my friend Meta calls it being marinated in achievement sauce. I mean, yep. you were, de you were deconstructing other things. Exactly. Yep. But great deal of pleasure to sit in the pews at your church today and to see what you're able to do because you've let go or mostly let go of some of these external standards of, of success. I definitely I identified dad with your desire not to go to conferences. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy if I never had to go to another conference again. Sorry, Kate. <laughs> no, I was going to say, you know, I think that one thing that strikes me Sarah, is that you're able to say, you know, I get paid a pretty good salary and I'm, my focus is really not on all these things that that sort of, Doug, I would say, are part of your disillusionment, right? That there must be some freedom that's afforded to you in the context that you're in, Sarah, that you could focus on these things that, Doug, I think you couldn't have focused on at the time or in the places where you were a minister. and. I guess the other thing that that I felt like I noticed in the book is you tended to find these churches, Uncle Doug, that had just gone through something hard, right? Some some dramatic split with their former pastor or some, you know, issue that people were grieving. And then you kind of, it seemed like, would come in and your task is different in a grieving church or in a context where people aren't sure that they can trust this place, you were doing a pretty specific thing in your ministry. It would, would you say that that's true, that that's a marker of what you tended to do? And that that influenced the way that you were able to take on some of these bigger, more controversial parts of being the church? You know, even where there wasn't a, a difficult relationship with a former pastor, uh, the churches I served tended to look backward. So even if there wasn't a scandal or a, a, a division in the church, I usually came to a church where people were still looking backward. And they, as Sarah uh, points out, they were grieving. They were grieving the shrinking Sunday school and the, the shrinking attendance. So all the focus, uh, focus was on trying to recreate the past, the glorious past. And w what's happened in the church, I'm, I guess I'm happy to say, is that that's no longer, it, it doesn't seem to be the focus anymore of, of ministry. But yes, <laughs> the, the churches I served along the way uh, seemed to be in trouble in ways I probably didn't appreciate when I was there. They were just trying to survive, and, and they were looking to me for a way to get back on the path to success as the church used to define it. But in Ann Arbor and Fort Lauderdale, I think, Dad, you saw through some of the issues that they were having and and there was almost this barrier with their perception of themselves that they couldn't get past and i mean i think you saw what needed to be done but the the disillusionment comes when you know that these people in your churches don't see themselves the way that you're trying to help them see themselves like they couldn't get past their grief because of their own privilege. And right. 
I mean, just to give you an example of that, the, the church in Fort Lauderdale was uh, looking to build, they scaled it down some, but it was, it's still a $16 million building in the middle of quite an affluent uh, neighborhood. And, and the neighbors were horrified. So the neighbors would show up at city uh, council meetings to argue against it. And, and the church's strategy, <laughs> in spite of what the Bible says about our neighbor, the, the church's strategy was to bulldoze the neighborhood. We were going to deploy as many resources as we could to get our way with the city council. And, and so, yes, it was clear to me, Sarah, that that was not what the church was called to do. And convincing the congregation to go a different direction <laughs> took all of the years of experience that I had accumulated to that point. It was, it, it was a diff yeah, it's difficult situation. And you, even if they, I mean, I don't know if they see it the way that you see it, but you saved them in a sense because you helped, you prevented them from becoming mere retailers and down the street. Yeah, exactly. Well, I know what you're referring to. The building that the city was going to require, <laughs> this is just boggles the mind. The city was going to require the church to build retail as part of its uh, overall plan in order to get the building permit. Well, yeah, I, I, I think the church lost sight of its mission. And I would like to think that if you surveyed the, the church members today, they would say, uh, we're glad we didn't invest in that because that's no longer, that's no longer what the church aspires to be. But getting them to see that at the time, yeah, it was a very, very difficult. Do you think that something happened that helped? I mean, so it sounds like what you're saying is this congregation and maybe a larger, you know, maybe the church more at large has shifted away from something that would have compelled them to become retailers so that they could expand or whatever towards something new. I mean, what happened? What change do you think, Uncle Doc? You know, I would like to think that the change came from within, but that's probably not the case. I think cultural factors have shifted. Uh, millennials have said goodbye to the church in large numbers. That was beginning to happen at that particular church. In spite of fine Sunday schools and youth programs, and in spite of the money we spent on all of those things, the the youth were growing up and saying goodbye. Uh, and I don't. I like to think that they were not saying goodbye to faith itself, uh, but they were certainly saying goodbye to the institutional churches we were trying to pass it on to them. So yes, larger cultural factors were certainly at work and now they're, they're undeniable and we can't avoid them. It's Sarah, interesting. Were... Oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just, as my dad's talking, I'm thinking about it, an example in my own congregation of the church, the building we're in is 70 years old, but was started 140 years ago by German immigrants. And um, there's one particular member who takes so much pride in our building. And his he, he moved from Germany in the 50s and started a concrete company and is rather obsessed with the parking lot that we own. And, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there are a group of church members who are working on a land acknowledgement to help the congregation understand that the land we are on is actually Lakota land and just the spectrum of understanding of who we are and, and what we are about is, I mean, I'm, 
it's fascinating to see. And I'm so grateful that the people on the other end of the spectrum are there trying to help us all come along in the in the understanding and how God is maybe calling us to come f- full circle on some of these issues. But the getting accompanying people in understanding issues is I think that was is maybe the biggest accomplishment of your ministry dad is to you worked so hard to try and get people to understand how they could see things differently possibly yeah I I worry that you're putting the best face on it I'll gladly (laughs) I'll gladly take these these words from you it feels good but the truth of the matter is I was that I too was all caught up in those external standards of success. I, I too bought it uh, at the beginning anyway. I believed in it, sought after it, sacrificed time with uh, you and the rest of the family to, in order to achieve it. Oh yeah, it's, it, but it, so it's not all, <laughs> it's not all on the congregations I served. I think you do such a good job in the book of being I don't know, really self-aware about, you know, looking back on it now, some of the ways that you did sacrifice that you wish you wouldn't have, some of the choices that you made that you wish you wouldn't have. And I think anybody who reaches the end of a career who's being honest would say some of those things, but it had to have been painful to to come to those realizations. Was it hard, Uncle Duck, for you to write this book or to have some of those like more, I don't know, re- reflections that, yeah. that you would, that are painful, I guess. Was that hard? Yes. Yeah. The short answer is yes. I think that what happens, and I didn't realize, I didn't see this coming. No one warned me, but I think that when people get to a certain point in their lives, there is a life review and some people can put it off a good long time. And maybe some people are skilled enough to put it off forever, but I reached a point uh, where I I couldn't avoid it. It was uh, it was suddenly there, and I had to think through what I had done. And so the question I asked was, did this amount to anything? Did those years I gave to this work amount to anything? And that's of course where the book title comes from. My not to give things away, but I will. Uh, my grandmother used to read from Ecclesiastes at the the dinner table. <laughs> and of course, this uh, made an impression like on you the mind. <laughs> <laughs> like some people do, uh, it, it made an impression on a young mind. It, so it, each Sunday evening, we would sit there. She would read that she considered all that her hands had done, and it was a vanity and a chasing after wind. So clearly, looking—I don't think she was depressed. Clearly, looking back. She too was going through a kind of a life review. What does this amount to? Was any of it worthwhile? Did it have meaning? And so the two of you should know (laughs) that at some point when your children are grown and you're sitting at home in front of your laptop, uh, some of these thoughts will come tumbling out of you as well. I, you know, having said that, I have to say that I, I shared chapters with classmates hoping that they would see themselves in my reflection. And not all of my classmates did, or uh, not all of my classmates were willing to go there. So I'm still giving Are they still working? (laughs) 
Sort of. Yeah, they're, yes, they're doing more interim work than I've done. I do yeah, think I it's mean, interesting it, that you're that you're that even at this point still, though, Dad, that you're trying to measure it. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I would like to think that the staff I'm going to be serving with in a few months that uh, we'll be able to talk together honestly about these things. Right? I, I I could use some colleagues who honestly reflect back to me the language that they hear from me. We'll see if that happens. It feels like I. It, it just feels like a little bit of a. Um, I know you're trying to be self-deprecating, but it feels like a little bit of a disservice or a like don't you think there's some amount of dignity that your congregants are owed in you saying that it wasn't just chasing after wind it meant something you know i think back to the wheaton days where you uh, spent your childhood and where you discovered what the church could be and i think that we had our hands on something there i think that beneath some of the other things that didn't amount to much, that we found something valuable. And we found it in a couple of different areas. One one was in our uh, youth ministry. We had some uh, guiding principles there, which uh, make me cry now when I think about them, that every child is a, or every person is a child of God and deserves to be treated that way. So this was a mantra we repeated throughout our Sunday school and youth ministries. And I look back on that and I thought, and I still think we had that exactly right. We, we, we demanded that our children be treated as children of God. And then uh, the other area where I, I want to, I was going to say, take some credit, but it, at least to lift up something that we, I think we did right. And that was in the area of mission. And this, this was before the, the days when the missional church language uh, was available to us. We already knew that the church needed to be reaching out. That we were that a church that's always coming together is not a healthy church, but it, we had to be a church that was giving away. And it, even though we didn't have the language to describe what we were doing, we knew we that we had to be doing it. And I think we did it in in so many ways, not sometimes embarrassing ways, but our motivations were uh, right on target. I think. I think it's worth noting that, like. If you don't look back on things that you did in your life with some embarrassment, it probably means you didn't try very hard. <laughs> like, <laughs> how are you being embarrassed of a former decision or belief or whatever? It it means you were a human being interacting with other human beings, right? And so I, I'm one of those people who, you know, if, if you read anything I write on the blog, you know, I tend to be a little critical <laughs> <laughs> or Christians he, or whatever. I I have texted you about not only I mean it was more than embarrassing moment, it was like a deeply troubling moment in my ministry like two years ago. Do you remember? Yeah, absolutely. And the yeah, reason I, that we could talk about it is because I had had so many similar embarrassing <laughs> Yeah. And and well, I do think it's an astonishing thing, Dad, because like you clearly in the book, there were so many painful moments. I mean, it was almost hard to read all of them. And you, I mean, you stayed in ministry. And even the way you talk about it now is though, like you couldn't have done anything else because you had bills to pay. Well, that's not necessarily true. You could have done something else, <laughs> but you, you kept doing it and you didn't, I mean, you switched churches, but 
she didn't bail on the concept. And I do, there are people resigning from ministry left and right. I mean, there's a, there's a going to be a clergy shortage. There is one. And you, you quote Eugene Peterson a lot. And the, the, one of the things that Eugene Peterson says at one point is like, a pastor that leaves after a short period of time or after, you know, some sort of complicated thing that happens in a church is like a, like a rape or something of the, of mm -hmm. like just going there and deciding I can't do it and throwing my hands up in the air and then leaving it leaves a congregation sort of whiplashed. Like what just happened? I thought this person was supposed to be here to shepherd us anyways. Yeah. It, it so what I would come back to is that chapter on the holy bits. I think what kept me coming back, what kept me around the church was my recognition of God's presence everywhere I went and in any church I served. It was those holy bits that made my ministry have meaning and made me come alive in you know, wanting to do better, wanting to learn more. The, for those of you who haven't read the book yet, the holy bits refer to those places where God's presence is palpable in our lives. And it happens in the sacraments, of course, but in uh, so many other places. And I wish I had focused even more time and attention on, on those things. And Sarah, <laughs> you play a key role in, in that book. It was your baptism a few years ago, and then uh, a few years after that, your ordination, which were some of those high points in my life where I thought, well, God is present here and God is at work. And so my job is to say to the, the people who are gathered, do you see that? We need to pay attention to that. There's something happening here. And it's exciting and usually wonderful, sometimes not wonderful. But so anyway, I, I never lost the sense that my work of ministry was to point to the holy. And you were somehow able to get past all the moments of, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I wrote, I wrote down words that kept coming up for me over and over again in your book, betrayal, regret, tension. It's hard. Oh, clearly I didn't get much help from my editor. Uh, who <laughs> <laughs> Well, those are the words that emerged for me, not right. that you necessarily wrote a lot, but yeah. yeah. Early on in the book, I tell the story of uh, looking sad one Sunday morning and, and a dear friend, he was the chair of the committee that brought me to the church. And every Sunday morning, he brought me a, a prayer that he had typed on a three by five card. He, he noticed my sadness and he said, have they spit on you yet? And he was referring to Jesus, of course, who's being spit upon was the least of his concerns. But what... What I, what I heard was parts of ministry are going to be difficult, right? There's, there's going to be, this is the way of the cross and not every moment is going to be filled with joy and laughter. And I think that was true, but there, there were plenty of moments that were full in other ways. And I, I don't have any regrets about them. I wish I had had even more of them. I think one of the problematic things, though, as I hear you talk about that, is that there were some things that were unacceptable. And one of the, I mean, maybe this is getting too personal, but I think one of your main arguments with mom over the years is that mom saw many of them as unacceptable and you were willing to put up with it. And I wonder 
if that has, unfortunately, I'm not calling you out as the individual here responsible for this, but it's shaped a culture in the church where people can behave really badly and we all just go on as if nothing's happened. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how you uh, handle the situation, Sarah. I, I thought on many occasions that I had to be the adult in the room when I wanted to go off on someone, uh, when I wanted to speak my mind. I thought that the pastoral role in, in many of those situations was to continue to be a, a healing presence or the adult presence to create a situation where everybody could speak. But the, yeah, there were many times, yes, when I held it in. Do you see that instinct any differently now, Uncle Doug? Like if you were to talk to Sarah or other ministers who are doing this safe work, but in such a different context, right? Post Donald Trump, post COVID, we're having this conversation the day after a devastating school shooting happened. I mean, there are, there are contexts that seem like would have been unimaginable in the 90s or, you know, like throughout your tenure as a, as a pastor. Does that instinct to kind of be the grown-up in the room who keeps the cool, does it strike you that that would serve a minister differently today? Right. The downside to that approach, to, and I, another way of describing that other approach was to create a big tent situation where lots of viewpoints could be heard. The, the, the downside to that is I think I, I reined in my own voice and I stopped saying what I believe to be true. And so that's where the regret is. I don't regret having been the adult in the room, but I, I do regret not having said clearly where I was on particular social justice issues. Yeah, yeah. No, no doubt about that. And uh, what gives me joy in going to Sarah's church is, <laughs> is to hear my daughter stand on Sunday morning and say things that I could not imagine having said. I could not imagine having stood up in the Wheaton church, Sarah, and uh, proclaimed what I hear you say so, what seemingly so easily on Sunday morning. What, I mean, it's thrilling in a way that people wouldn't appreciate. It's thrilling to hear you say what you do. Um, I think, Dad, I was going to say it is, I mean, I, I can say what I say because of the privilege of having had other people, you know, do a lot of that work before me to make it so and who said goodbye to a lot of church members along the way in order for me to be able to do that. But I found your book to be like, like I, maybe it was painful to write it, but I sensed kind of a relief in it too. Just like when we confess every week, it's like, oh, what a relief to just be honest. Right. I certainly didn't make it all better by uh, telling my story, but I, I feel better for getting it off my chest. Yeah, there is something healing about writing a memoir. I mean, and that's part of the motivation for people to write memoirs. Another motivation is to justify themselves or to, uh, you know, cast blame on, on others. Uh, but a healthier reason to write a memoir is to come clean to finally say what needs to be said. And I, I think that your experience, it, I think it mirrors so much of what I think a lot of people have experienced in changes in the, the church. And I think that the, part of the gift of a memoir is being able to recognize your own self, your own questions, your own regrets, your own story, 
in somebody else's willingness to say it first. And, you know, I think this book, you know, we've focused on a lot of that regret, which is certainly a theme in the book. I think you speak frankly about it and with a lot of, yeah, self, self-deprecation or whatever, Sarah, you were saying. But I also think that it's a pretty, it's a pretty hopeful book too, because I do think you're able to focus on those holy bits. That chapter is a pretty important part of, I think, the overall picture that you're painting of what a life of ministry looks like. And those holy bits are the parts that we can't measure, you know, that we can't take credit for. And they're the parts that sustain us and maybe bring us back to, you know, the church after we've left or after we've become disillusioned. I think those are the pieces that are not in our hands. They're in God's. And I think you you drew that out beautifully in this book in ways that made me want to I don't know, reconsider some of the, the ways that I had uh, written off a lot of my own story in with the church. So I, and I and I appreciate having this conversation, too, because I think in many ways, Uncle Doug, having Sarah come here, who is the product of a lot of the good stuff at the Wheaton Church, for example, she was in that youth group and she was part of those trips that you talked about and the the missional the sort of identity as a child of God, all of those things that you you know, that were good investments have, have contributed in Sarah's life toward, I think, a really generative and lasting life of faith, even though so many people in her generation have not stayed in, you know, or gone on to do ministry in the same way that Sarah has. Sarah, what would you, yeah, what would you say about like how your dad's investment or the church's investment in you has shaped where you are now? I think it's given me the gift of and my dad too, the gift of staying with something in order to figure out the grace that comes out on the other side of it. And yeah, Nadia Boltzweber, who there were a number of quotes from in the book, also talks about, you know, saying to her new member classes, like, I'm going to screw up big time at some point, but you should really stick around for how great it's going to be when we figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the gift. And even though, some of the some of the raising of me in that Wheaton church was problematic and I've probably unleashed some of that pro problematic stuff onto others in my own work of deconstructing and figuring it out which is part of the pain for me I think that it, in your own figuring out of what how you've been raised you end up doing some damage along the way but it is important to stick with it because what comes out on the other side is usually a more authentic and beautiful version of yourself. And that to me is worth, I'm willing to stick with church because of that and for the sake of others too. I'm glad. <laughs> more than you know, I'm glad. Certainly makes me more interesting than <laughs> just quitting and becoming, I don't know, something else. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for, yeah, for having this conversation between the two of you. I love you both so much. And you guys are so brilliant in your own ways. And this back and forth has been just fun for me to watch. And I also have just been so blessed by your 
pastoral presence, both of you, in my life as your family. But Uncle Doug, I did also want to say to you, I so appreciated your honesty and your willingness to look back and take ownership over stuff and to question things. It just felt like healing to me in some ways to have somebody who, you know, went through the kind of like uh, mainline church career that you did to be able to just reach the end of that with a curiosity and a willingness to hold it loosely I think that there's that's such a gift. So that's what I guess I would offer if people who are interested in reading this book. I think that that's really what I take away from that. You, you, you use this metaphor of inhaling and exhaling, which is such a, I think, a, just a beautiful way of thinking about our lives and the life of the church. And it is such a breathing is not something that we do. It's something that happens to us, you know, and so I. I just left the book feeling this sense that you were willing to hold it all very loosely, which felt like a gift to me at this time of the church. And so I, will, I wanted to thank you for that and for giving us a window into all that you have learned. Thank you, Kate. Yeah, you can't imagine how gratifying it is to hear you talk about uh, the book in this way. Thank you for, for doing this with us. And, you, you know, if you had focused entirely on me in this conversation, it would have been uh, discouraging and disillusioning, but I think Sarah's presence is a reminder that there is a new time in the church and there are some new ways of thinking about ministry. And it's a, it's about time that we had those. Absolutely. It gives me a lot of hope. Well, the book is called Chasing After Wind, A Pastor's Life by Douglas Brower. I recommend it to you. Thanks you guys for talking to me today. Thanks, Kate. We love you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Reform Journal podcast. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Share this podcast. And until next time, may the peace of Christ be with you.